I'm Pastor Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church, and welcome to Church Online. If this is your first time watching us, we'd love to hear from you. Just leave a comment or a like, and let us know that you're watching. And also, if you need anything, you can always visit us at lifechurchutah.com, and we'd love to be able to pray with you about anything. If you'd like to participate in giving today, you can do so by texting the word LCGIVE to the number on the screen. Once again, thank you for watching Church Online here at Life Church Utah. God bless. So Merry Christmas. It is right around the corner. I cannot believe this. Now it's starting to feel like winter, and that's a good thing. That is a good, good thing. All those people down in the south where it's nice and toasty, warm, whatever. Live a little. Live in Utah. So... Uh, so as we start our Advent series, uh, we're going to be looking at the next four weeks, and today we're tar uh, starting uh, with hope. If you want to turn your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles or your smartphones or whatever device you've got with you, uh, Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to start in Isaiah, though, just one very short verse here. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, to kind of kick us off. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This idea of darkness and light is a theme throughout the Word of God. And uh, for me, the best way I can uh, kind of think to describe this is, has anybody ever been spelunking? You know what spelunking is? So spelunking is exploring caves. That is uh, that, that phrase. So you learn something new every day in church, right? Uh, spelunking is a, is a wonderful word. And I remember when I was in college and we went to a, a cave that was near the campus, near Central Bible College, and uh, uh, went into the cave and kept going into the cave. And we eventually got to a point, and those of you who are claustrophobic, I, uh, for, uh, forgive me for sharing this part of the story, uh, but we got to a point in the cave where you would have to breathe out so that you could have room to shimmy forward a little bit because when you breathed in, the rock was on either side of you such that you could not move once you breathed in. That's exciting to be in, right? And you're just thinking to yourself, what is wrong with me? But anyway, so you get way, way, way deep into the cave and then you turn off the lights. That is called pitch black. And in that moment, there's, a, there's a, an edge of fear with it because you're wondering if I turn the light back on, is the light going to come back on? <laughs> because if it doesn't, uh, I would still be in there, <laughs> right? Because there's no way to get out if you have no lights. Um, but in that moment, you could take the smallest pin light you can think of, even a single match in that, in that, in that absolute darkness, and that light makes all the difference. And I think for, um, for Isaiah, when he's writing this, He's revealing this heart issue that all of us have, that our culture has, that there is a darkness, but there is also an appropriate light that is leading us to hope. And this, to me, is all about the Advent season, that there is darkness around us and there's difficulty. In fact, it says this, hope uh, is an expectation or belief in the fulfillment of something desired. Present hurts and uncertainty over what the future holds create the constant need for hope. Worldwide poverty, hunger, disease, and human potential to generate terror and destruction create a longing for something better. And I think if we get too fixated on our news and the world around us uh, and, and we listen to it, uh, we can find ourselves feeling hopeless. 
especially if we choose to put all of our hope in a political system, right? Or all of our hope in finances or all of our hope in something other than where our hope should be and that is in the light of God. So longing for something better. This takes me back to the book, book of Genesis chapter 4. And I want to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and kind of right after that to help us understand that this need for hope has been part of the human condition basically from the beginning. So for those who have never read the book of Genesis, um, and I encourage you to read it, that's kind of the beginnings, that's where everything starts. Um, But uh, if you've never read it before, in a nutshell, there's Adam and Eve who are in the Garden of Eden. They make a couple of decisions uh, that lead to uh, some real problems for human nature, and sin is introduced into the world. And soon after that, Adam and Eve have have their first kids. Uh, That is Cain and Abel. And uh, everything seems to be going really well. The kids are growing up. And then tragedy strikes, and Cain decides to take the life of Abel. So from the very, very beginning, families have been fraught with difficulty. How many of you have a perfect family? Anybody have a perfect family? All right. Anybody? Nope. No hands up. All right. And mine is not either. Uh, Right? So we struggle in our families, and this has been from the very, very beginning. And Genesis uh, chapter 4, verse 25 says this. Adam was intimate again with his wife. So this is after the passing of Abel, after he was murdered. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Verse 26, a son was born to Seth also and, named, and he named him Enosh. So get the picture. You've got Adam and Eve, the next generation, and then the next generation after that. So three generations. And then it says this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So I think what's happening here is the same thing that's going on in our culture today. Adam and Eve and Seth and Enosh and those other family members who were there at the time, they look around at this broken world. They look around at all the things that had gone wrong already, and there's now just literally a handful of people on this entire planet at this point, and they look around and they go, things are not right. Something is amiss in the way that this life is unfolding. And so what do they do? Well, something within them, something within their hearts cry out to God. And they begin to call on the name of the Lord. Um, The Hebrew word for hope denotes expectancy. So there's an expectation. It's an attitude that believes something good is to happen and then looks for it rather than a longing for something good while lacking any grounds for conviction that that good will come. So in other words, the Hebrew verb and nouns and all of that that deal with hope is it's a hope grounded in the reality that that good things and hope is worthwhile. Another way to look at this is uh, there's a link between the verb and the noun. Because people have hope, that is because there is a positive, there's to be a positive future, they can hope. They can look forward. So because there's hope, they can look forward in hope. And that's kind of the idea for hope for us. So for Israel, this hope in God is grounded deeply in their religious expression and language and all the previous activity of God. So hope looks back and says, God, you moved in a particular way that gives us hope today so that we can move forward. Um, So as we do quite often, already have in the book of Genesis, we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. So maybe turn back a page in your Bible or flip a little bit there on uh, on your phone. And in Genesis chapter 3, what we have is right after Adam and Eve sinned for the very, very first time. 
Right after they said to God, God, we've got this figured out. We're going to do it our way. Right after they were tempted by the devil to do the wrong things, this is what God speaks over the serpent, the one who was uh, kind of there uh, trying to get Adam and Eve to sin. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. This is verse 15. I will put hostility between you, between the serpent, between the devil, between his, you know, between his, uh, his offspring. I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now listen to this next two phrases here. He will strike your head. Some of your versions say he will crush your head. So the offspring of woman will crush the head of the serpent, and then you will strike his heel. So the offspring of Satan, whatever, however that works, that, that sin nature will strike the heel of the offspring of the woman. So there are very real consequences, and things are going to get more and more and more difficult before they get better. That's what God is talking about here. However, here's the final hope that we have, that God wins, <laughs> right? That the head of the enemy is crushed. Uh, we have that hope. Uh, uh, even the book of Romans talks about that. We have this hope that the God of peace will soon crush the enemy under our feet, and this is that hope that we have from the very foundation when the first wrong thing happened, God said, hey, I've still got this. We can still have hope. Hope depends on future fulfillment, but its rationale is grounded in past experience, which is why the Advent story is so powerful. Now, when I say Advent, uh, it's a great Latin word. I think it's uh, also there on your, uh, on your notes. Adventus is the Latin word for it, and it means uh, coming or means arriving, something along, uh, some, something along those lines. And so the story of Advent is the story of Christmas, the story of the incarnation, the story of, of Jesus coming in the flesh. And so that is the Advent story. Originally, Advent was actually more about the second coming of Christ, but over the years and really centuries that it has been around, it's come to be part of the Christmas story. And so hope in this moment um, is really grounded in this idea of the coming of Christ. And uh, there are times when hope shows up differently than you expect. Um, I remember a few years ago uh, that, have you ever received a gift that you weren't hoping for? Right? Okay. You just you get a gift and you go, wow, I didn't think I needed that. I wasn't hoping for that. Uh, my son, uh, he was probably 13 years at the time, maybe 14. I can't remember exactly. And uh, we, we were giving gifts to our children and we enjoy Christmas time. And it's, you know, it's a wonderful time. Gather around the tree and you, you start opening up all those gifts on Christmas morning. And there were certain things that our son was hoping for. And then there were certain things that we gave uh, our son. And so he opens up his first gift and... Uh, He's all excited what it could be, and it's a pair of jeans. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a great moment, you know, as your son. You can just see the disappointment, you know, you've ever done that before. Disappoint, be thankful. <laughs> and um, so he gets the jeans, and, you know, there's more gifts to open up. And so he opens up the next gift, all excited and giddy what that could be for a 14-year-old boy. And what is it? 
a pair of jeans. This is great. So, so we, had, we had done this, and we gave my son that Christmas uh, three pairs of jeans. It was really cool seeing just his heart so explode with joy and thankfulness as he received those, because he was not hoping, right? He was not hope. That's what kind of gift givers I am, right? Um, the, the, he was not hoping for a pair of jeans. He was hoping for a video game or hoping for something along those lines, but the great thing is, his hope, even though he didn't realize he was hoping for jeans, uh, came in handy when all the other jeans that he have or that, that he had, uh, what do they have in them? Because he's a 14-year-old boy, holes all in them everywhere. You can imagine <laughs> that's where the holes were, and so that's why we, understanding the real need in his life, gave him something he wasn't hoping for, but in reality was he desperately needed it. Um, don't ask us to give you gifts because that's what you're going to get and stuff like that. So one time at Christmas, uh, back when I was a kid, when I was probably 16 or 17 years of age, uh, just beginning my, my faith journey, just learning how to, how to follow after the Lord with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and feeling really good about it, uh, we had all of our family over. We lived in Sandy at the time, uh, back in the be mid to late 80s. And uh, all the family gathers around. And if you've ever, how many of you have had like a, a big family gathering over Christmas time at your home, right? So that, you know, the, the gifts are piled up and everybody's all excited and you start opening all the gifts kind of at the same time. You don't wait for the next person. You just open them up. It's complete and utter chaos and it's beautiful. And uh, so I remember opening up a gift and I'm kind of a bookworm, have been for a long time, love reading. And it was a book and I was all excited and I open it up and I'm looking at it after I see it and I'm going, what am I supposed to do with this? It was the Bhagavad Gita. I don't know if you know what that is. It's Indian spiritual writings. It's Indian religious writings. Indian uh, India, like the continent India. It's their religious writings. And I'm looking at that, and everybody in my family knows that I'm a Christian now, and I'm looking at it going, <whistles> slide it under the couch that I'm sitting on, and it's, you know, sitting under there. I'm going, oh my goodness, somebody thought this was a great gift. I was not hoping for the Bhagavad Gita. That was not on my list. And uh, much later in the day, it came up. I was uh, standing there, and an aunt and uncle comes up to me and said, hey, we noticed we didn't see you open one of the gifts that, that we gave you, and we just wanted to see how you felt about the gift. And, and so I went and grabbed it, and I said, oh, thank you for this. I love it. I'm trying to, you know, be really excited. Then they start laughing because it was a joke. That's why they gave it to me. And I'm like, oh, God, that's, that's great. That's so exciting. Yeah, hope. <laughs> I was not looking forward to that gift. That was not it. So... Hope can also mean kind of this idea of anticipation or, or pent-up anticipation for what you, what you know is going to happen, what's been assured to you is going to happen. And this was the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel had this pent-up uh, expectation that one day they would be rescued from the oppression that they were under. Because at the time, they were under the oppression of the Roman rule, and things were not going well for them during all of these seasons of time. You know, for hundreds of years, they were oppressed, and they were broken people. And so there was this, this prophetic side of the nation of Israel where they realized that God had promised down the road that there would be a Messiah, someone to lead them out of this oppression. So their hope was built on passages like this, Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. Bethlehem Ephrathah. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. 
Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord. In the majestic name of the Lord his God, they will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. And so this was the foundation of the hope for the nation of Israel. Everything is going to be made right at a time when the Messiah is going to come. Now, in their eyes, however, their hope was based on a conquering king. A king who was going to come in and, and uh, overthrow the Roman rule through might and power and violence. So when hope truly came, it surprised them. Hope came in a way that was most unexpected. So there was a longing, a growing hope for the people of Israel. And so several hundred years from this point, when Micah gives this, um, this uh, prophecy... Well, the location is Nazareth. It's a little town of about 400 people. Anybody here grow up in a town of 400 people? We had one person from last first service. So that's, that's fantastic. I mean, that's mind-boggling in our, our world today to think of growing up in a town of 400 people. Everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business in a town of 400 people. You can't get away from anyone at that point. In Utah, I looked up. Uh, there are several towns of 400. Uh, Elmo, Utah, had no idea that Elmo, Utah existed, but sure enough, it does. Uh, Anif, Utah exists. And then one you might be more familiar with, Alta, has an official uh, population of 400 people. I didn't know that. But you think about it for a moment. In a little tiny town of 400 people in a humble home, a home uh, much like this right here, a uh, humble home much like this, uh, rocks and stones put together with mortar and then maybe overlaid with, uh, with clay or mud of some sort and hardened and so keeps the cool out in the wintertime, keeps the sun out and, and makes it cool in the, uh, in the summertime. Very poverty-stricken area of the world in a forgotten corner of the Roman Empire in the middle of Israel or Judea. Here is this little tiny town. It was an insignificant place except for a young couple. Their names were Mary and Joseph. She was a descendant of a royal line. He was also had ancient ancestors, were kings, and it is to, to these two that an inbreaking happens, that the, the eternal becomes tangible in this moment. And God speaks. Let me say that again. God speaks. And we just got finished with our series, uh, More Than Words, and we talked about prayer and how important it is, uh, and that communication. Here is an incredible moment where maybe there were um, uh, kind of needs that were never fully expressed, and yet God shows up understanding the hopes of the people, and God speaks. First of all, to an unmarried couple, to a young girl. Now, the Bible's silent about the age of Mary. We don't know for sure how old she was. More than likely, given the cultural norms in a little tiny town of 400 people, uh, she was probably 13 years of age, maybe 14, something like that. Very culturally normed for the day. And um, the fact is not recorded, by the way, in the Bible because it's unremarkable. It was just the way that things were done. And uh, she was engaged to a man named Joseph, who was probably uh, older than her by uh, certainly uh, quite a few years uh, older than her. Once again, we don't know how old he was because it was unremarkable. It was just part of the culture and part of what they did. It was a perfectly normal situation 
that was about to be radically changed. Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. So a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. I'd like to have an angel show up at your house <laughs> on a particular day. Rejoice, for the Lord is with you. It says, but she was deeply troubled by the statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Talk about hope. I mean, Mary was, was definitely deeply involved in the life of Israel at this time, and she understood, even as a young girl, the hope that Israel had. And here she is, of the age that she is, and God is speaking directly to her, saying, Mary, hope is going to be birthed in you. Anytime an angel shows up, it's not a normal day, <laughs> right? Mary's troubled. So hope. Uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but we are, we are hardwired, our brains are hardwired for hope and optimism. Now, I know hope is kind of different than optimism, but we are hardwired for optimism as humans. God has placed us within us, I think, as Ecclesiastes says, that eternity is written on our hearts. There's something about the way we're created that, that we want to look and we want to believe and we want to try to find something greater than ourselves. But hope, we know, is more than just a mindset. It's more than optimism. There's so much more at stake, and true hope is based on an eternal perspective offered only by God. And this is the wonder of the moment with uh, Mary and Gabriel. Hope burns bright in Mary, and it, it flashes in this moment the hope of a Messiah, the hope of a righteous leader. Look for in the triumph of military conquest. But this hope is unlooked for in the womb of a teenage mother. It would be shocking to be in that place. Luke chapter 1 goes on. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's slave or another version, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. And, and in my mind, I think in conversations and all that. So I've got Mary uh, here. There, there she is. And, and uh, so she's ready to have a conversation and all of that. Uh, you know, she's a bit apprehensive, um, speaks to the angel. You know, ah, you might not know this, but I'm not married yet. There's a right way to do things, Lord. And this is just going to throw things all in a craziness in our culture here. So uh, we really haven't done anything. My husband's righteous. And this is a... You know, the, I don't understand what's going to happen. So the angel shows up. There's the angel. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Let's go to a different angel. That one's a little, a little aggressive. There we go. That's better. <laughs> All right. Um, the angels there don't think natural, think supernatural. 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you, will alight within you. This is how this conception will take place. The angel's like, it's a bit hard to explain. I don't get it myself, but let's just trust God that he's got everything figured out. The Mary responds basically, okay, I'm in. This is a good thing. May it be to me as God has described it to be. This is where I think that Advent hope is born in the heart, not in the head. If Mary was thinking about this purely from a, from a uh, kind of this mindset of what makes sense, she would have said, not a chance, I'm refusing this. But she receives Advent hope <laughs> into her heart. Mary goes to Elizabeth then and and uh, they, uh, Mary breaks into song. And, and I think this is a, a natural response for us. And you've already caught a little bit of my own life, I think, in 1980s. That's where my brain goes when it comes to songs. And so in my mind, I've got Mary singing songs. I can't fight this feeling anymore, right? <laughs> I'm hopelessly devoted to you. Okay, all those things go through my head. I'm not going to sing anymore. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. So what is her response to this now irrevocably changed world? She's received a message from Gabriel directly from God, and her world is absolutely changed. And think about this. Her life is potentially wrecked. Young girl, unwed, pregnant, in a town of 400 people. Everybody wonders. Everybody does the side glance looking at her. What did she do wrong? What did Joseph do? I mean, you've got all of these things going on and Mary is thinking to herself, Lord, may it be to me as you have said. I'm your servant. And I love it when she goes to visit Elizabeth she breaks into song. Now, the song, we don't have the tune recorded, <laughs> obviously, uh, but the song is recorded in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. It's right after visiting, uh, visiting Elizabeth. And Mary said, this is called the Magnificat. That's kind of the, the standard name for this, the Magnificat. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his slave. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercy, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. There is something welling up deep inside of Mary, this hope that can only find expression through praise. It can only find its expression through worship. It can only find its expression through, to a, uh, through a heart that is like longing for God to do incredible things in her life. Hope is absolutely alive, and it shows up in praise. Mary leads with the heart and not with the head in this moment. And I also think what we see here is, is more than just Advent hope is, is uh, kind of uh, started in the heart. But Advent hope is an outward response to the will of God. 
Now, as time went on, as, as biology tells us, <laughs> there was an outward response to the pregnancy in Mary's body. And everybody could tell that she was pregnant. There was something outward <laughs> to this will of God being determined in her life. It's not covert. You can't hide that. It's not determined on the narrative of the news even that we read today or the news that we watch or the news that we see on, uh, on, on the internet. We see this, all of this stuff going on around us, don't we? All these things that, that say the world <laughs> is in a difficult spot and yet we are to still have hope because I believe that's God's will for our lives. And I love it that this is an outrageously overt action on her part where she says, God, I'm not going to just dip my toe into the cold water and find out how cold it is before I jump in. I am just saying, God, use me as your servant. Use me as your handmaiden, God. Take my life and use it. It becomes this outward expression of the will of God. What happens when you are tapped to carry the plans of God and it's not the way you thought it was going to be? I'm sure Mary, leading up to this point, was like, God, I want to be used by you, I want to be used by you. Hey, Mary, I'm going to use you, and this is how I'm going to use you. Part of her was going, can I do this? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And I love it that that is the heart of Mary's song. It's the heart of a faithful God reaching down to provide hope to a people that are desperate for it. I'm going to invite the worship team to go ahead and come on up here as we close out. Notice also in the song that, that Mary sings that the coming of the Messiah throws the accepted order into disarray. The words that, that she uses are pretty incredible. It says that he satisfies the hungry, but the self-sufficient become empty. Doesn't that reverse everything that our culture says is right? <laughs> Isn't that the, it reverses everything of the way that our culture works? It says he scatters the proud, but he reaches the down and out. He reaches the marginalized. Who is it that desperately needs hope? And I can think of thousands right around this physical church building that are in positions of poverty are positions that seem hopeless. Who did the Messiah come for? He didn't come for the self-sufficient, for those who say, I don't need you. He came for those who are broken, brokenhearted. And I believe even those of affluence and wealth, obviously, everyone needs Jesus. And there are some who are incredibly affluent, incredibly wealthy, that recognize a deep-seated need in their life that says, I need something more than what I have. And I praise God for those. But boy, those who are in a position of poverty, a position of brokenness, that desperation for hope is something so true in their lives. The truth of God's coming is not limited to Christ's life and death or to some far-off age and place. We too can live in the atmosphere of Advent for God is always intervening, constantly breaking into our experience. For the Advent truth is timeless. There is a perpetual coming, a ceaseless intervention of the divine. That is the meaning of the doctrine of the Spirit. And until we appreciate its glorious possibilities, 
we live impoverished lives, too easily exhausted, too soon cast down. How do we bring hope to our world? How do we bring hope? Because I think our responsibility is not just to say, hey, God, that's, that's what you do. We just sit and receive. I think our responsibility is to bring hope to the hopeless. I think that's what we're partially saved for, is to bring hope, to present the message of Christ to people that are far away from God. And so this Advent season, I think I want to lay a challenge for us as a church body, that we would take responsibility for letting the Spirit of God so live in us that we provide hope for a broken people. How do we do this? Well, part of it is as simple as bringing blankets, right, and gloves and hats for those who are in positions where they don't have those things, especially on a day like this. I mean, my, my heart goes out knowing that there are folks that are in a place where they have nothing to protect them from the elements. So these are the simple things that we can do to provide hope. The more difficult ones, what if we invited people into our home that we know don't, maybe, maybe there's a neighbor that's angry at us for no good reason, or we think it's no good reason. How about we invite them during this Advent season and provide hope in their life? But pastor, they, they, they go to a different church, they're of a different faith. Doesn't really matter. Not one bit. God has asked us to provide hope for those who are hopeless. Those who are in darkness, a great light can dawn upon them and maybe, just maybe, the light of Christ can shine through us. Maybe you've got a coworker in situations like that. Let us be a people that provide hope. You see, at just the right time, hope was met in the face of a newborn in a town called Bethlehem, just like the prophecy foretold. And you realize that Jesus was born completely helpless, completely reliant upon fallen humanity to care for him. And yet God said, this is where I am introducing my plan of hope to the world is in helplessness. And I think we should be able to provide hope at just the right time to the world around us. And then finally, Advent hope resides through, through a spiritual perspective. It says, now may the God, this is Romans chapter 15, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Folks, there's a perspective that we need to have in our lives that the Spirit of God is at work within us, bringing hope to the world around us. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.